Hello, and welcome to episode 55 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which is 30-minute episodes with a variety of guests from around the tennis world. It's a pretty deep archive at this point, so even though we're still waiting on a couple of eagerly anticipated episodes from Carl, there's a lot to go through in the archives as well. And also have to thank Carl for getting up at the crack of dawn this morning to record. We are now nine hours apart, um, so it doesn't leave us a lot of good windows to uh, both record a podcast and work at our real jobs, those of us that have them. So it is April 1st. Promise there's no pranks on this episode, just the usual jokes that aren't terribly funny. Um... We've wrapped up the Miami Masters and the WTA Premier Mandatory event in Miami. We have a couple big winners in Ashley Barty and Roger Federer. I want to start this week talking WTA and Ashley Barty. And Carl, I, I think it's fair to say you've been an Ash Barty fan for quite a while now, right? Yeah, a fan years ago when she was a promising teenager. A hopeful fan when she was off tour for a while, including trying cricket, and a very enthusiastic fan of her very impressive comeback. So, what do you think? Before we get into what what's generating the results, what makes you enjoy her game? I'm going to sound like such a tennis commentator here, and I I would even more if I could somehow put on a good. British or Australian accent, but don't say controlled aggression, please. No controlled aggression. <laughs> no, I was going to say good old old school Aussie serving volley tennis. She doesn't actually serve and volley that much, especially in singles. But you know, she she has a big serve, she has a big game, and she's really good at closing a point at net. And she um, she does play a somewhat throwback style and it's it's really effective and yeah i mean she's one of several wta players who's recently had a lot of success in singles and in doubles and uh it's it's fun to see it work on the singles court i was really blown away by her serve numbers at the very end of this miami tournament she hit an ace on more than a quarter of her service points against carolina pliskova in the final and Barty's 5-5 five, five. doesn't immediately look like she would be able to blow people off the court, especially on the serve, but she can, even in a final against a top-ten player. Yeah, you if you were to look at Ashley Barty and Karolina Pliskova before the match started, not knowing anything about either player, you would not pick Barty as the one to put up the impressive serve numbers. But she does uh, regularly, and like you say, she she moves forward very confidently, she moves around the court well. Uh, gotta love the backhand slice. She's. Are there any other w- women these days who hit predominantly a slice? Is she, is she the last one? Well, you phrased it in just the way to create a loophole for me to say Monica Nicolescu, but in terms of but she she does <laughs> she hits a she hits a forehand slice. No, I know you said. Okay. Is there anyone else who hits a slice? So I'm oh, okay. using that loophole. Um, I yeah, I can't really think of one I mean not that she's playing at her best level or nearly as many matches but does Stoser still throw in some slices maybe oh yeah she still she still hits a lot um but yeah she's she's barely hanging on in singles these days 
Yeah, do you think that that's, um, I mean, is that something that, that WTA players should use more? I mean, if it's working for Ash Barty, then it seems like it would work for other players. But then again, it seems like the whole rest of the tour is voting against it with their shot choices. Yeah, I... I think we have a lot of evidence in tennis that when a whole tour is voting one way on shot choices, then you can get some mileage from voting another way. On the other hand, we have evidence that it's not that easy to just add a shot to your arsenal. I mean, we've seen players reveal, for instance, that they have terrible drop shots because they're put in a situation where it's obviously the right play if you have a good one. So it could be that enough players in the WTA now have gone so long without it being part of their portfolio that they just wouldn't be good enough at it to make it worthwhile. Yeah, it is, it, it is a tricky shot. I mean, it, it, in some ways it seems very easy because it's the, the kind of shot that duffers like myself can hit pretty consistently. But at the same time, on against really high-level opponents, you've got to get it deep, you've got to keep it low. I mean, the if you're hitting topspin ground strokes, then if you, if you keep it reasonably deep, you can at least keep yourself in the point. But if you hit just a mediocre slice, then against an aggressive player, the point's over. I mean, you've there's no coming back from that. Um, you, you've got to be really consistent with a, a good deep and low slice. Uh, deep low, you know, generally some width. Like we've all seen that that slice that sits up high in the middle of the court and as you say it's it's you pretty much need your opponent to to miss a sitter at that point yeah and the wta is increasingly populated by players who do not miss sitters um now i I, we've been noticing this for several months now that that ashley barty's elo rating has been considerably higher than her wta ranking because she was not even in the top 10 until today's rankings came out with the Miami title included, but she's been, I think in the top three of, of ELO, at least in a hardcore ELO for months, at least I'm not sure when it started, but it's been going on for quite a long time. So we've known that she was probably better than her, her ranking suggested. And now that we have the Miami title in the books, she's up to number one, both in overall ELO and hardcore ELO. And by, I mean, it, I wrote in our notes by a healthy margin. It, it's not a huge gap. She she's at twenty one forty and Halep's at twenty one hundred in overall Elo. So I mean that that doesn't give her much of an edge over Halep, but it it isn't like a it isn't just a rounding error. Um, and I wonder what you think about that, Carl. I mean, it, it's rare that we see someone at the top of the list who whose W whose official WTA rating ranking is is lagging so far behind. I mean, do you think we can really look at Ashley Barty as the number one player in the world right now? Well, let me first turn a quick question to you to better understand something. How do you... I understand hard clay and grass ELO and how you would calculate it. Is overall ELO the same and you just include all matches that the player has played? Yep. So the the funny thing about that is... I, I mean, that's how I would do it too. The result is that if somebody basically plays almost no matches on a surface which can result if they lose a really high percentage of their matches on the surface, they just don't get many. You can have what looks like a uh, Simpsons paradox, to use a stats jargon, where Barty is ahead of Simona Halep by almost 40 points in the overall ELO, but 
Halep trails her by 70 in hardcore ELO, is ahead of her by a little over 20 in grass court ELO, and then is ahead of her by almost 400 points in clay court ELO. Uh, now I know that hardcore is a dominant surface, but clay isn't that far behind in terms of number of tournaments. So you'd think, okay, Halep is way better on clay, a little worse on hard. She's going to be better overall. But Barty plays, has played almost no clay matches, so it probably just doesn't really affect her overall rating very much. Um, I know these things aren't linear and it's this isn't exactly the way to do it but i'm bringing that up because the clay season is coming fast it's it's this week um and i expect that that halep is going to have a much better clay season than than barty will yeah that's that's a good point and one way to think about that is to take it to the extreme that if you were actually barty and your goal was simply to maximize your overall elo you'd skip the clay season uh I guess it's possible she could go play some internationals and, and win a few matches and maybe not hurt her ELO rating, but uh, probably better just to steer clear of your of your worst surface altogether. I mean, for, for WTA rankings and general prestige and pretty much any rational factor influencing the scheduling decisions of a 22-year-old tennis player, uh, that doesn't make sense. But for ELO, it does. And that's, that's one limitation of the overall rating. So there, there's that caveat to take into account. Um, but what's interesting that you mentioned, obviously, you'd expect Halep to be way ahead on the clay, and she is, but she's also ahead on the grass. And Barty, as you said, she has a throwback Aussie style, and the throwback Aussie style is tailor-made for grass, isn't it? I mean, would you expect her to be playing a lot better on grass than she has? Absolutely. I mean, we also know that grass is such a small part of the calendar that those ratings can be a little funny and you know when I look at her results on grass they don't they look impressive enough um you know last year she she won Nottingham made the quarters in Eastbourne won some matches in Birmingham at Wimbledon so it was a pretty good grass season I think she probably had one of the 10 best grass seasons in, of the WTA or 15 or something so it could just be um small sample size, but Halep, I, I think it's more about Halep being pretty solid on grass in a way that's probably surprising based on, uh, her game style. Um, cause Barty, it looks like is around 12 in, in grass ELO and Halep is, is eighth, which I think a lot of people probably wouldn't pick. Um, but she's, she's had some good results at Wimbledon and, uh, manages to adapt pretty well to a surface that doesn't seem to favor her game. And on on the the clay specific ratings, like I say, we'd expect Halp to very be very high and Barty very low. Do you think Barty's going to be able to grow into being a contender on clay? Yeah, I don't think you know we've we have seen some players in the ATP and WTA get to the clay season and just look like they're going through their three mandatory matches so that they can get to grass and get back on hard courts afterwards. And I don't think that's the case here. I mean, Marty's last clay court match was a very close loss to Serena Williams. No shame there. She also last year had three set losses to Sharapova and Wozniacki. So clearly there's potential there. Um, and yeah, I mean, the slice is not going to adapt that well. The serve isn't as big on clay, but she should at least be competitive and has been. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if she had a deep run at one or two big clay tournaments this year with the way she's playing. 
Yeah, and you made the comparison to Stoza earlier, and I mean, there's there's some very big differences in their games, but Stozer is also someone who who has a bit of a throwback style. She doesn't seem to have a, a game that's tailor-made for clay, but she's had some great results on the surface, including beating Halep at Roland Garros a few years ago. So at least on uh, in the women's game, uh, there's not as much of a difference in how the surfaces play, that you can't see Halep succeeding on grass. It's not hard to imagine seeing Barty have some good results on clay. You know where Jeff stands with Halep, that Stozer's highlight on clay was beating Halep and not making the French Open final. Yeah, I mean, that was a long time ago. True. It's not the Stozer we, we're seeing now, unfortunately. Yeah, it was more that I was pretty sure she'd made a French Open final, but wasn't quite sure enough to, to say it without making a lot of loud clicky noises on a recording to check her Tennis Abstract page. <laughs> we're still working on the, the mental version of Tennis Abstract. We're just yeah, the page in our I, head. I am definitely not that. What we have perfected is the mental version of Roger Federer's tennis abstract page, which I think there's maybe 20 or 30 people around the world who are the living embodiment of all the information there is to know about Roger Federer. But it's a lot tougher to get that for other players or for all players at once. Well, people have just chosen Federer because he has a really short page, so it's easy to memorize. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, t- t- typical issue with Federer I saw on my Twitter timeline this morning that someone noticed that, I think according to the ATP site, it, it, Federer has played 134 Masters events, and according to my page, he's played 133. And I'm sure in this case, the ATP is is right, uh, both because they generally are for major tournaments and also because uh, I know I've had some issues in the past with Masters tournaments not being tagged correctly. But it, it's funny that you can... We, we agree on 133 Masters events, but there's still room for disagreement with 134th. Just to give you an idea of, of how extensive the data is on that guy. Get on it, Jeff. Yeah, right after we record and I do some other stuff and then probably some other stuff. So w- one thing I wrote this, this past weekend, I... I, I I finally took my own hint from a, a couple of recent podcasts and dug into some data looking at, at aging patterns uh, in women's tennis. And one surprising thing I found was even though the, we've seen the sport get older over the last 20, 30 years, uh, peak age has remained about the same. Uh, players are still peaking around their 20, 23-year-old season, 24-year-old season. Uh, that's been the case for at least 20, 25 years, probably more. The difference now is that players are sticking around longer um, and, and not just sticking around, but sticking around playing very competitively. And I found that that on average, players who are peaking at 23, 24 are still playing almost as well at 27, 28, even 29. And in the ballpark within about 50 ELO points, uh, even into their early 30s. And that's something that was not at all the case uh, several generations ago. And I was thinking about that specifically with Pliskova because... I feel like Pliskova has been one of those players who's had a lot of potential for a long time, and people see all of her all of her talent. I mean, the, the fact that she's so tall and can has the potential to serve so big. We've been talking about Pliskova taking the next step for quite a while now. Uh, and she made the U.S. Open final. She was briefly number one, I believe, but hasn't really gone beyond that. And now that she's twenty seven and she's in, I feel like maybe we've seen what she has to offer. 
I checked those numbers and saw that about 10% of players managed to peak after their 27th birthday. Um, so with Plishkova making a, another big title here, do you think, Carl, that she could be one of those 10% that maybe we we still haven't seen the best that Plishkova can put on the court? Yeah, I think it's possible. I think she's been really close. And uh, I, 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 you know, the, the follow-up, I think, is gonna, could be like, how did these curves vary by game style, if at all? Uh, it seems like her game style could age well. And, you know, like the, the variable with all these things that is probably really hard to quantify is injury risk. She's been pretty steadily healthy and not just in terms of not missing a lot of time, but in terms of steadily being a threat throughout the year, um, which which you need to achieve peak as you're defining it. Uh, oh, actually, you don't necessarily because there isn't a big penalty for injury, but it, just in terms of keeping your level high. Uh, so yeah, I think that I, I think we could still see her, for instance, reach number one, win a slam title. Um, she's she's continuing to compete at at lots of tournaments and pretty consistent by surface too. Yeah, it is a, a, a something surprising about Pliskova. I always forget this when I don't watch her play for a while that she has a very sort of mixed all-around game like, like obviously she's very tall she has a she has a big serve she can and does take advantage of those angles but she's in, in no way a serve bot i mean she she moves well for her size uh, she can play all around the court so she doesn't really play the sort of game that you would assume she would play just just by looking at her or knowing how tall she was and that has served her well um, on a variety of surfaces. And as you say, she's managed to stay healthy as well. Um, same sort of question with with Ashley Barty. She's has she just turned twenty three, or is she close to turning twenty three? I, I forget, but she's she's around there. So she's she's either at the typical peak age or just before the typical peak age. And if this were the end of the year and she had this 2140 ELO, that would put her about 30th of all time, which is pretty darn good company. Uh, since she's at about this peak age that works out to about a 50% chance that she could still go higher, uh, that she'll she'll continue to improve. Uh, do you think that's likely with, with Barty that we'll see her um, become an even better player? I do. Um, one, one thing that I don't think we understand that well is what her her absence from the game meant for that. Like, is she effectively 21 or something uh, because she wasn't playing for a while? Or, you know, does that absence, do you improve just as much in the absence just because overall physically you're improving? Uh, but, you know, if it's the case that she that she kind of hit pause on her development and still is where she is now, that that could really propel her into uh, a even more, a smaller, more impressive group of players of history. Yeah, I mean, if she's effectively 21 instead of almost 23, that that's certainly true. And I, I guess the flip side of that is how to treat absences that aren't injury-related. Because this, this is another topic that we need to research a lot more. But my, my impression is that if you lose a lot of time to injury... I mean, Obviously, it's bad because you're not playing those tournaments. Uh, you have to come back. You have to rebuild those skills. But I think that 
on average players fail to catch up like that there's some there's some value in just sticking around the tour seeing what everyone else is up to steadily improving because you're practicing all the time whatever it is like you can't just pick up where you left off and there's an even smaller sample and it would be even more difficult analysis to to answer the same sort of question for someone like Ashley Barty who wasn't injured but didn't play I don't know how much she was uh, holding a tennis racket in that time but presumably not too much so does does that mean like you say did she just press pause Um, did her cricket skills give her an advantage Um, was it worse than pressing pause I mean you can you can create a, a narrative for the whole range of possible outcomes. And I guess we won't really know until we get an answer to our question and, and see how, how good she gets. But it, it is tough to pin down for someone with an, with an unusual career trajectory like she has had. Um, one more player worth talking about. Oh, there's a lot more from Miami, but I want to talk about Simona Halep because we don't do that very much on this podcast. Um, she lost to Pliskova in the semifinal. She didn't play that well. It was a kind of a weird match, um, interrupted by rain several times, but that's not the reason why she lost. Uh, but she was one match away from taking over the number one ranking again. So she's back to number two, uh, not far off from number one. In Stuttgart in a few weeks, Halep, Kvitova, and Osaka could all walk away from that tournament as number one, just as they did in Miami. Um <laughs> This is the manyth time, I don't know, the seventh time, something like that, that Halep has played a match that could get her to number one in the world, and she only won one of those. So have to wonder if something is going on there. But what what do you think, Carl? In Coming into this clay season, Halep has to defend the Roland Garros title, which is a pretty big ask, even for the best clay court player in the world. Um, who do you think is going to be the WTA number one after Roland Garros? This is where I really wish we had. We already have great stuff on live rankings, but I want something like live rankings after the next two months drop, and like what effect that has. So well, there is the there is the page on live rankings where you can see five weeks out. Oh, okay. All right, I haven't even found that. Uh, is that under schedule? Maybe I'm not sure. Apologies for any clicking, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the current standings and don't know about the points dropping, you think Halep, Clay, yeah, sure. But yeah, I mean, she's dropping 2,000 from the French and uh, 600 from, or it's more than 600, right? It's um, 700 from making the final in Rome. Yeah, that and sounds right. So th- there's a lot a lot of points to defend. Seems likely she'll have fewer points at the end of the Clay season than she does now. And... <clears throat> Osaka, who is number one, does not have many points to defend from the clay season. So I, I, I think that's the safe pick. It's not like Osaka can't play on clay. Uh, and then Kvitova has had a pretty good start to the season, not quite as you know, inevitably a drop-off from a great start at the Australian Open. But I, I could see her picking up some clay points, too. She's had good results at Madrid in the past, so... She had a deep run there. Um, yeah, so those would be... I, I'm choosing one in three where number two has the French Open points dropping, so not that bold. But um, 
hey, who knows if if I'm right that Barty can do more on clay and almost did last year, then uh, she'd she'd have a shot too. But she has almost two thousand points to make up. Well, yeah, there, there's there's lots of of women who have a shot with a good clay season, uh, and. The interesting thing, mentioning Barty, I was about to do the same, that looking at the, the top 10 or so in the women's game, everyone except for Osaka and Barty is pretty good across surfaces. Uh, so you have a lot of players who you'd expect to be competitive at the at Madrid, Rome, French Open, uh, these major clay court tournaments. If you had to pick between Osaka and Barty in a clay court match, which direction would you go? Let, let's see how loud my clicking is, but I want to check my memory of her Osaka's results on clay. I I think I'm I'm somewhat biased by knowing that she's made some third rounds at the French Open. Um, yeah, I think I take Barty. I don't know. It's a close call. I mean, Osaka clearly. Like, she's done a lot since the last clay season. She's won two slams, so uh, also maybe unfair to judge her too much by that. But um, overall, I think Barty is a little more comfortable on clay. But I, I think it would be an exciting match. I mean, it would be one of those clay matches where the commentators would say, this doesn't feel like a clay match. Or... <laughs> yeah, it would It would be an interesting match. And I, I was about to say very confidently that it feels like Osaka has the bigger serve that would translate into success on clay in the way that, I mean, just in the extreme case that Isner has been relatively successful on clay, but I'm not really sure if that's true. Do you have a sense of that? If like, I mean, Osaka and Barty are both very effective on their serves, but in different ways in large part, because Barty is relatively short. Uh, But do you have a sense of which of those two would have a more effective serve on clay? Yeah, I think that, um, I think that just overall, Barty has a more effective serve, even though Osaka gets a lot of credit for her serve. And so I, I think all I'll sequel that would translate to Clay. I, I think it's remarkable how much she gets out of her serve at 5-5. Five, five. Um, it's it's not, like you said, you just wouldn't expect it from looking at her. Yeah, I, I just watched that final uh, over the weekend, and there was one game where she went up 15-love and then hit three consecutive aces. And... Even when you're watching it happen, you don't really expect it. I mean, e- e- compared to someone like, I don't know what, an ATP equivalent might be Philip Kohlschreiber, who who does pretty well in his serve despite being short compared to tour average. Um, Kohlschreiber looks like he's putting a lot into it. And Barty doesn't even really look like that. I mean, it, it's very precise, and obviously she can she can direct it very precisely. But... Um, but it doesn't look like she's going for bombs, even if those are the results she gets out of them. Um, one last WTA issue. I, I was talking about most of the top 10 when I, I mentioned all those players who are good on all surfaces, competitive on clay. Um, in addition to Osaka and Barty, we might put one more name in the conversation. Current number 10, Arena Sabalenka. I've never heard of her. Tell me about her, Jeff. Yeah, we haven't talked about her on this podcast since at least since last week's podcast. So... We need to get back on that. So one last Osaka versus Barty question. Clearly, both of them would lose a match to Arena Zabalenka, pretty much regardless of surface. But which one of them would win more games? (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, all ELO ratings rule all, so clearly Barty. Yeah, I guess if you're you're going for Sabalenka, the the queen of the game, then you're... 
implying that you're relying heavily on ELO ratings. Um, Sabalenka still hasn't gone very far at a slam. I, I don't remember what her results were at the French Open last year, but I'm, I don't think she won more than a match or two with that. Uh, do you think she has the the game to make a real impact on clay? Yeah, I mean, she. these are all young players, so we're, we're kind of guessing. They don't have a lot of track record, but I think she probably has the weakest clay track record. Um, maybe the game that, that translates the least. But also, as you said, in general, the surface effects for players seem like less than they, than they used to be. I mean, it's just, it is hard to judge the Sabalenka of last year's French Open because it was before her kind of breakout hardcore performance in the fall. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd rank her third of those three in 2019 clay court prospects. That's before she starts winning every slam, right? Yeah, she's going to start winning every slam. It, it is tough. Um, it, it seems like there, there's plenty of room for for ball bashers uh, in the women's game to to win Roland Garros since Sharapova has had good results there. It took her some time, but she's had good results there. Serena, of course, has, has had plenty of success there as well. Um, Ostapenko. You, you yeah, that's a, a great example. Um, if Ostapenko can win, then Sabalenka can definitely win. Uh, yeah, you don't need to have a subtle clay court tuned game to win Roland Garros. Uh, and that's good news for Sabalenka because she certainly does not have that. Schiavone won with a game that looked kind of like a grass court game, although she's always been good on clay. Yeah, that's um, an, an interesting case as well. She's in Charleston. I, I saw some pictures of her practicing in Charleston, but I, I could never figure out what she was doing there. If she was coaching someone or hoping for a last-minute opening in the draw, I'm not sure. But good to see her around the tour. Um so let's switch gears over to... Oh, one last thing before we, we switch over to the men's game. Uh, Arena Sabalenka is is worthy of discussion this week, not just because she's worthy of discussion every week because I'm obsessed with her, but also because she and Elise Mertens won the Miami doubles event, which comes on the heels of winning the Indian Wells doubles event. So The true sunshine double. The sunshine, the du- sunshine doubles double. Yes. There you go. Exactly. Um, which is really remarkable. I mean, we we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago after the Indian Wells final. I mean, Mertens is known as a very capable doubles player. Sabalenka has hasn't been around very long, so we don't really have much of a track record for her. But they've played three events together, uh, and they've now won two of them, with the two being the premier mandatory events and. And beaten a lot of good teams, including Stozier and Shui, Zhang Shui in the Miami final. Um, I think Mertens feels like a known quantity right now, but Sabalenka still isn't, despite our efforts. Do you think that these kind of doubles results are... Uh, I mean, is that possibly a, an encouraging sign for her being able to adapt and eventually dominate on clay? <laughs> Uh, yes, doubles results on hard courts definitely imply that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a different format and a, a new partner and being able to win right off the bat. I I would want to see some evidence, and I think this would be one of those studies that's pretty difficult to do uh, and pretty difficult to decide how to how to construct it. But um, it, it 
you've heard players say that just being on court and winning is a good thing and, you know, getting getting more playing time and, and doing a lot of different things, which doubles forces you to do. Um, on the other hand, we're waiting for Jack Sox singles comeback. So that, that would be a strong piece of evidence that it actually matters when you're struggling in singles like Sabalenka has been. Yeah, you also kind of wonder how much players really believe that since almost no one ever plays challengers unless they have to. Occasionally, players will go do it as an, an injury comeback. But if if players really believed that getting wins under your belt is important, you'd I think you'd see more of that. Um, well, they, maybe they just know they'd be made fun of for poaching, which is what some people do when a top player plays a challenger. That's true, um, and maybe rightfully so. I don't know. It it it, it is. Uh, it's certainly not the logical choice when you consider the money at stake, even just from winning a match or two at a tour-level event versus winning a challenger and the very real possibility of not winning that challenger. I did like the the model of having an Indian Wells challenger just before the Masters there, and that seemed to get Kyle Edmund in the draw and seemed to benefit him when the tournament came. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, one strange thing that week is there was also an Indian Wells WTA 125k so basically a challenger even they just don't call them that on the WTA circuit um and it attracted what might have been a better field than the the WTA international event in Acapulco that same week so Wang Kyung was was there um I forget who the other couple of solid players were but I think arguably the field was better at the 125k in Indian Wells than in in Acapulco, suggesting that players really value that kind of continuity, like having sort of an extended warm up in the conditions or something like that. Yeah, I mean, for big tournaments, a lot of players arrive a week early anyway. So if you have an event, it sort of formalizes the practice sets they'd be playing anyway. Yeah. Exactly, and it gives Victoria Galyevich a great opportunity to win those practice sets, as she did with her great week at the Indian Wells 125K. I think we've managed to touch on all the heroes of this podcast already. Yeah, we have. Should we just wrap this one up? <laughs> Can't get any better. Halep, check. Sabalenka, check. Galyevich, check. Ah, uh, wait. Roger Federer. So, Roger Federer is up to now 101 career titles uh he won this miami masters quite easily he dropped a set to Radu albit in the early rounds but didn't drop any more sets after that and had some very easy matches against uh, kevin anderson and then john isner in the late rounds and we were talking earlier about ashley barty hitting number one in the elo rankings federer has not done that but he's very very close within 14 points of novak djokovic and that really closes a gap that um, had been there not too long ago. Djokovic had opened up a pretty decent gap um, towards the end of last season, I believe. And after the Australian Open. Yeah, after the Australian Open would help as well. Um, Djokovic lost, was that the fourth round when he lost to Bautista Agu? Third round, somewhere in there? Yeah. Uh, So a pretty disappointing result from him. Rafael Nadal was not there uh, recovering from the injury that knocked him out of Indian Wells as well. Uh, so we should we need to give credit to Federer for for winning the tournament. You can't beat the opponents you don't play, but 
how much of this do you think is is Federer being great and how much of this is kind of a, a dud master's draw? Well, I think the draw goes a long way toward explaining Federer winning. I think Federer being great goes a long way toward explaining just how easily he won after the um, the first round. I mean, he, he won the last 12 sets without needing a tiebreaker. He bageled Kevin Anderson. He gave Isner a 6-1 set. Isner was injured, but I think the injury was really worse in the second set. Um, you know, he... he dominated Shapovalov. He won really comfortably against Medvedev, who's been in the top 10 of tennis abstract ELO ratings for quite a while. Um, given the slate of opponents he was he was handed, he won about as convincingly as I think anyone could, could have expected. The Isner match, again, has that asterisk because it is of Isner's injury, but I'm still going to point out that this was by dominance ratio, which is the ratio of um, percent, percentage of return points won to your opponent's percentage of return points won. This was the second easiest tour level win of Federer's 1,185. Uh, and, and Isner's worst. Wow. Isner won 9% of return points, which is terrible even by Isner standards. And he, um, yeah, he lost almost half of his service points, which is really terrible by his new standards. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was, it was quite a, it, it would, it was about as dominant a performance as you could put up against Isner. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's, it's funny in one of them, one of the long, long list of John Isner quirks, somehow he got injured midway through a match and, 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 made him got a much closer score in the second set than he did in the first. Um, yeah. That seems like something only John Isner could do. Um, yeah. It, it, to your point that he really dominated the competition. I mean, it, it wasn't the very best players on tour that he beat, but it was generally very good servers and someone, I didn't check this number, but someone tweeted on, on something they tagged me in that based on the opponents that Federer played, um, those opponents were allowing 33% of return points won, and Federer over the tournament won 43%, which that, that's a really, really big gap. I mean, that, that's the sort of thing that suggests that against he against average-level servers, he'd basically be winning not quite half, but close to half of his return points, and you just don't lose playing like that. That's an enormous gap, especially when you consider that that's weakened a little bit by losing a set to Radu Albert, which feels like it shouldn't quite count. Um, yeah, it's definitely encouraging, uh, given that return returning has been what degraded for Federer lately. Like his serve stayed strong, his hold percentage stayed steady, his break percentage had dipped. And also, you know, he's going to play at least some matches on clay, and he's going to have a harder time holding there. So if he can actually have an improved return game, that, that could really help in matches where he has to scrub. Yeah. So with with the Miami title under his belt and with the fact that he's going to play at least a couple of clay court events, uh, are we back in a situation where Federer could conceivably be the year-end number one? 
It's possible. I mean, he he probably needs Nadal to continue to either miss some big tournaments or struggle, and I don't expect either of those on clay. Uh, and he probably needs Djokovic to continue to struggle as well, just because he started the year so so strong by winning the Australian Open. But I mean, it is it does suggest at least that he will be competitive or should be competitive at some of the remaining big tournaments, including uh, Wimbledon, the U.S. Open. I'd be very surprised if Federer is competitive at the French Open. I think it's even possible that he goes to Madrid, remembers what it's like to play on clay, and decides to skip the French Open. Yeah, that does seem quite plausible. Um, I completely just lost my train of thought, but let, let's... Let, Let's go on to the couple of Canadian teams who made up half of the Final Four in Miami. Um, Denis Shapovalov was part of Federer's easy path to the title. And the even bigger story was Felice Auger-Aliassime, who is 18 and made the semifinals here, youngest semifinal in Miami Masters history, uh, up to 24th in the ATP rankings, 27th in the ELO ratings, um, of all the 339 players in my ELO ratings, so players with at least 20 matches in on the ATP Tour, Tour Qualifying, and Challengers, of 339 players, he's the second youngest, and the only one younger than him is Rudolf Molliker, who is 321st of the 339 players. So all of which is to say he's really good and really young. Uh, I also noticed, noted in the Around the Net I published yesterday that he won his first five matches against the top 20. Um, no one else has done that before, ever. Um, well, except for some players when the rankings were first introduced, but they don't quite count. So well, I want to come back to Shapovalov in a moment. Let's start with, with Auger Ali Asim. I mean, this is really big, right, Carl? I mean, we haven't seen an, an 18-year-old make this much of an impact on tour for a long time. Yeah, I mean, how how old was the the name that comes to mind in recent years is Borna Chorich. He was he had some good results when he was eighteen, right? Yeah, I mean, he was eighteen when he upset Nadal in Basel. That's the win that sticks out for me. But maybe there's more to it than that. But yeah, it wasn't like a sustained run like uh, Auger Auger Eliassime. I I'm so bad at French. Um, has had in the last five or so tournaments. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean. It's it's tough to quantify exactly what Ajay Aliassim has done because the he made the final in Rio, but as we talked about that week, the the Rio draw ended up just it wasn't very good to start with, and it ended up just getting gutted. So, I mean, it, it was barely more than a tough clay court challenger. So, I mean, credit to him for winning those matches, but only so much credit. And then, to a certain extent, same thing here. I mean, it's tough to know exactly how much credit to give him. Uh, in general, I've noticed that when players do have big breakthroughs at a very young age like this, uh, the ELO tends to quickly get ahead of their, their rating. I mean, we didn't talk about this uh, b- before when I planned to, but Bianca Andreescu is up to number four <laughs> in the WTA ELO ratings, which gives you an idea of, of how fast ELO can adjust to a young player going on a tear. But but Auger Ali Asim his ATP ranking is actually ahead of his ELO. He's 24th in the rankings, 27th in ELO, suggesting that for someone who's been in a tear like this, it hasn't been against the highest quality competition. 
But that's yeah, well, you still, did still just say, yeah, I mean, you said five first five against top 20, so that's not nothing. I know these were mostly players from 11 to 20, which is what happens when you hear a stat like that. But yeah, exactly. But it's a, it's a nice start. I mean, it, and you know, I, I probably make too much of this, and eventually you'll run the study that shows I do, but when he's lost lately, it's been close. Um, he's not getting blown off the court. And, you know, that Isner match was two tiebreakers. He, he wasn't far from uh, playing in the final. Yeah, the story with the Isner match is, is a bit complicated because, yeah, I mean, it was a very close match. I think there was one game when he broke Isner to love. Um, that's yeah, he's, yeah not, you don't see that much. And he served for both sets. Right. So, so the story of the match isn't young prospect almost um, upsets established star defending champion. The story is young prospects chokes. Uh, I mean, it, it can't be very common to, to get yourself in a position to, to serve for the set against Isner twice and not convert. Um, so, well, but, but that's, that is the story people tell, but do we know that it's significantly different if you broke before Isner versus breaking after Isner? I mean, would we, we'd be talking about it differently if, if Isner served for both sets and got broken and, and then he lost in two tie breaks. And I don't know how differently we should be talking about that. Yeah, that, that is the question. I mean, it, it feels like, like I said, it feels like there's a, there's a choke narrative going on here, um, that he had the opportunity to serve it out. He didn't, Isner normally doesn't break people. So, so yeah, it, it, you're absolutely right. It would be a very different story if the breaks had come in a different order. But they happen the way they happen, and it looks like he wasn't ready to, to convert on a big stage. Maybe that's not fair. If someone else said that, I'd probably argue with it and, and make a comment like you did, Carl. Um, but hopefully he'll be able to disprove that soon. Yeah, I mean, if you give a guy six chances at a Masters, uh, he's going to have some moments that look pretty clutch and some moments that don't. He he won the first set tiebreaker in the previous three matches, two of them against top 20 guys. So occasionally he certainly can close. I, you know, I, I remember when we talked about him in the clay season, we both sounded a little skeptical of him. And, you know, with hindsight bias, I regret that. I I still am not sure what what exactly is is like setting him apart and making him have such good results. But it does seem like he is incredibly steady and mature in rallies for his age. That's that's one thing that stands out, in addition to a pretty big serve for his size. What do you mean big serve for his size? I don't know. He's just he's not that. He doesn't look like he's that big or strong a guy. Okay. Because he is 6'3", I believe. Yeah. Not I even mean, counting the hair. <laughs> I mean, maybe the stats don't back it up, but he, he seems to me like he's, he's serving even bigger than that. But yeah, I guess his overall ace percentage is probably roughly in line with 6-3. Okay. Um, he's got so, some, what what the commentator would say here is he's got some weight he could put on. 6-4 <laughs> according to the ATP set. So yeah, that's serve probably, right in line with that. They probably measured the hair. Okay. I've repeatedly heard 6-3, so th- that must be right if I've heard it on, on tennis broadcasts. Um, so if, if we've got this guy who's up to the top in the top 25 semifinals in a masters, um, all while he's 18 and a half ish years old, uh, by far the youngest player in 
all, all sorts of different categories you could draw. Does, is he a future number one? Are we that optimistic about him right now? Well, I'm looking forward to the follow-up to your Bianca Andreescu post about him uh, with ATP stats. But, I mean, the indicators are pretty pretty good. Then again, I'm always skeptical of a projection that looks really different from what the projection would have been two months ago or something. Um, Which would be very very much the same for Andreescu. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think... In our case, three months, but yeah, not very much time. I think he's he's very strongly he's very likely to be future top five, future number one seems so hard to project, um, and so dependent on what other players in the cohort who are developing more slowly end up doing. Yeah, that is the the big question, and what I would love to have, and I've started working on this a little bit, is is just a, a really a simple. Um, projection system for rankings i'm guessing i'm sure you know about the marcells carl the, the baseball forecasting system yeah um so for, for those listeners who aren't into baseball analytics like there's, there's this a whole slew of different forecasting systems out there most of them with with names of varying degrees of cleverness and acronymity uh, but the, what the marcells are they're, they're sort of the the baseline um projection so you all it is is a player's age and their last three years worth of stats weighted for how recent they are. So if you have those numbers, you can create a projection for next year. Um, there's an even simpler algorithm that, that, that the, same, the same guy, Tom Tango, created just with wins above replacement. So just a single number for how many wins a player is worth. Uh, and that's called the war cells. So the same basic idea. So I'd love to have that. Uh, all this is to say, that's what I'd love to have for rankings, where you could just say, this guy is... 19, he's currently ranked, what is Shapovalov ranked? I don't know, 20. His ranking last year was, at this time, was 52. His ranking the year before that was 274. Um, what do we expect in one year or two years from now? And you know with a system like that that it's going to be very approximate, but in a way that's its value. It's just its way of saying, here, here's what we can... Here's our sort of baseline projection. If we didn't know anything in particular about this guy or how his body is developing or who his coach is or anything like that, this is what we project. And then we can we can embroider on that with the next 60 minutes of podcast. Um, but the problem with that approach, as appealing as it is, is if you project somebody for number three, then you've got to do that without any knowledge of who the other members of the top five are and what happens with them. And that's what's ultimately going to determine whether whether someone like Felix is a top five player or a top three player or number one. I mean, he could he could be the same amount of great, and depending on how Alexander Zverev develops, he could be a ten time Slam winner or a two time Slam winner. Yep, Andy Murray is nodding vigorously. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, if we, you know, another quirk of tennis versus baseball is like imagine if baseball were sometimes played on clay and sometimes on hard courts. Um, we don't have, at least in tennis abstract, we don't have any matches for Auger Eliassime on grass. So, not that not that his career is going to be made or broken on grass, but it would be nice to know like how all surfaces he, because we know he can play on clay and hard courts. And I guess we'll find out this year because he's certainly getting into all the grass court draws he wants. 
Yeah, and he another quirk for uh, Ajay Aliassime is he he played qualifying in Australia uh, and didn't even qualify. <laughs> he lost in the second round to Christopher Eubanks, and now he's going to be seated at Roland Garros. And I remember maybe three or four years ago the same thing happened, and I can't remember who it was, but it was it was another. Not a big story, but a notable statistical quirk that someone qualified for the Australian Open and then ended up with a seed at Roland Garros. Uh, but he's definitely deserved that and will definitely have that at Wimbledon as well. I just saw that this morning the Madrid tournament announced they're giving him a wild card, which has to be one of the most uh, the most obvious non-home country wild cards ever given in ATP history. By the way, you speaking of him being seated, uh, I think you said before that he's ranked 24th. It, it looks to me like he's 33rd now. Really? Oh, shoot. Well, I apologize for repeating that error so uh, so confidently and frequently. So maybe he was going to be 24 if he won the semi. That could be. He also moved up 24 slots. Oh, that could be it, too. Yeah, the, generally when it comes to podcasting, I just... You put a bunch of numbers in my brain and I spit them out. Normally they come out at the right times, but not not always. Jeff Bud has a bug. We'll do it after the show. Oh, no. 22.4. No, I don't know what it means. Um, yeah. You know, he still obviously could be seated at um, the slams later this year because he's more likely to rise than fall based on what he's defending. But Well, if he stays at 33, <clears throat> he's going to be seated. Del Someone's going to be out. definitely out, yeah. yeah. Is Del Potro basically out for the clay season? I think so. I don't remember what the latest was on his injury, but it wasn't optimistic. So at least him and probably others. And, you know, last I read, Isner was worried his foot is broken from yesterday, which would be a pretty terrible way to leave that tournament. Yeah, it's champion one year, broken foot the next year. When I read, he said it felt like his foot was broken. He, it, it was his way of expressing how much pain he was in. I didn't read that he said he thought it was broken. Got hopefully, it. hopefully it's only painful um, and not painful and broken. But I guess we'll find out soon. So let's see. Did you want to talk more about Shapovalov too? Yes. So Shapovalov is, he's not as young as, Ajay Aliassime, but he's close. He's still 19. Uh, he's it, He feels like he's been around for a while since, wasn't it a year and a half ago at the U.S. Open that he had his big coming out party? It sounds uh, right. So he's, he's been on our radar for a long time. I even, I, I read some comments, p- people were saying, people were wondering what happened to him last year because he, he got so much attention in September 2017 and then all he did was be a consistent top 30, top 40 player for 2018, which is really impressive for someone still in his teens. But Federer didn't have much trouble with him. I mean, that's happened to, to great players in the past, so it's not a not a huge criticism. But he has this very electric game, which normally when you describe someone as electric, it's because they're not really great. They're just really fun to watch, or they're very talented, and they haven't converted that into consistently usable skills. Um, do you think that might be Shapovalov's Achilles heel that maybe he's, this feels more, this sounds more negative than I mean it, like more flash than substance. Yeah. I, I mean, I think 
it's it, it we we say more flash than substance when what we mean is <laughs> something like more flash than consistency like uh they hit flashy shots at a higher rate than maybe higher ranked players but they also are going for a lot of flashy shots and miss some of them and that's a perfectly reasonable way to play if you have great shots um but it I guess the end result, one way to say the end result is your highlight reel looks better than your results when you play that way. And your highlight reel could look like top five on tour and your results could be top 15. So there's no shame in either. But that disconnect can make it seem like you're having a disappointing result. Yeah, that that's true. And I could also just be biased against Shapovalov because his hair is so flashy that <laughs> it's sort of like racism, but for hair. Um what do you? We, I think we've talked about Shapovalov's long-term prospects before, but not for a long time. Uh, now that we've seen him stay, at least stay competitive with the best players in the game for a while, uh, do you think he's a top ten player, a top five player? I mean, what's his end result? I, I think with somewhat less confidence than his year younger, almost as highly ranked compatriot, I'd say top five. Um, because he is, you know, he's turning 20 later this month. He still should be far from his peak. Um, but it is, as as maybe silly as it sounds to say, where was he last year? What happened to him last year? I, I think probably his projection has fallen off a little bit from when he was beating Rafa and making the fourth round of the U.S. Open in 2017. Yeah, and, and I wonder if that's fair. Um like I, I think that's that's certainly true in terms of how people perceive his future, uh, but maybe maybe having a reasonably steady year at tour level when you're eighteen, nineteen years old is more impressive than one signature win when you're seventeen. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think like, like some other young players we've talked about, he seems to be below average in returning, and for whatever reason. Maybe, for whatever reason, probably for the reason that three of the four all-time greats who have dominated tennis for the last decade were among the all-time greats in returning, just have this sense that there's more of a cap on a player who served dominant, uh, whereas Oje Aliasim seems to have a more solid return game. Well, and, and it, it's true. There is a cap on, on players who are more served dominant, and that's something I've written a couple articles about. I mean, it's, it's not an, a law of nature, but it seems to be pretty consistent. Uh, but that said, that that cap is very high. Uh, I mean, you can imagine Kyrgios being a top five player. I think everyone has at least can at least imagine that. Uh, but Milos Ronic profiles similarly, and I think he made it to number four. Uh, going going back further, think of guys like Ivan Isevich and Richard Krychek. Uh, definitely perennial top ten guys who I think both of them peaked in the top five. So if if you want to talk about like a, a potential six time slam winner, then I don't think Shapovalov is in that conversation with the skills we've seen from him so far. But top five player uh, that's we can disagree about that, but there's there's no law against that. Not even the experience of ATP history has anything to say against that. I mean, a few minutes ago, I projected him in the top five, so I think we're on the same page. I, yeah, uh... sort of a sort of a weak top five, sort of a Jurgen Meltzer in the top ten, top five. <laughs> well, we we should be able to name someone who is a, 
a top five, a weak top five? Who who is who like sort of just dipped in there? Well, Milos Ronich. Yeah, he made three. I'm pretty sure, and made okay. a slam final. Anyway, we'll we'll come up with Tommy Robredo. Did he did he reach a top five? I think Tommy Robredo was top five. Wow, I know Simone was top six. So that's what yeah, I, mean. I was thinking of Simone as well, and I think Sanga might have also. Did Sanga get past six? I'm not sure. I think Sanga made four at one point. But yeah, Sanga would be an interesting one. Although Sanga's made a bunch of slam semis in a slam final, so it feels a little... Yeah, Robredo. Robredo number five. That's a good one. All right. I got Sorry, one. Tommy. Love you, yeah. Tommy. Yeah, I, I won a bet once when someone was convinced that, that Tommy Haas peaked at number five because they were thinking of Tommy Robredo. Oh, I was like, oh, that's that's brutal to Tommy Haas. He's so much better than that. Um, okay, one last topic for this week. Um, Carl, you've put uh, a lot of time into thinking about the the tennis calendar and its, its drawbacks and how it could be fixed. And we're looking at a very strange week right now because the, the Davis Cup format has totally changed and is now focused on the year-end finals. There's... No ATP tennis this week. Nothing. We've got a, a women's premiere in Charleston. We've got a women's international in Monterey. And there's a whole bunch of challengers. And I think there's some Davis Cup Group 2 ties, but that doesn't really matter too much. Basically, no men's tennis. So it sort of makes sense. We have this transition from the U.S. hard courts to to the clay court season. But what's your take? Week off, good or bad? It does feel like a shame to have no opportunities for the for the guys on tour who could use them every week they can um i mean i think it makes sense to have a week off for for in terms of mandatory tournaments after two straight two week masters um but yeah this does seem like an avoidable error just given how often they move around tournaments even the year before to a pretty dramatically different place in the calendar there's tons of room for experimental exhibitions. I mean, could you imagine, for instance, a tournament played on a court where half the court is in North America and is a hard court and half the court is in Europe and is a clay court? It would be very difficult logistically, but it would be a really good way to transition to the European clay season. Yeah, it would be like this podcast only in yeah. tennis match form. Yeah. Have Are you on stop. clay right now? Yeah, uh, uh, always. Um, I guess one thing I was thinking with this week off, like you seem to be thinking in, in terms of a missed opportunity to have more tournaments or have a tournament move to its own week or something. My first thought was, if we've got a one-week gap in the schedule, could we make the season one week shorter? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of tournaments are anchored to certain parts of the calendar, I don't think they have to be, but, um, you know, the U S open for instance is, is anchored around that middle weekend being labor day so that there, it's a three day weekend for Americans. Um, so I don't think it's that simple to just move everything forward a week, but it, it does suggest, you know, I, I also think that raises a question that players seem to have answered for themselves or some of them have vocal ones, but this question of like, is it better to have a really long off season or to have a, some breaks in the middle of the season? And maybe there's a lot of benefit to having not just this week off, but having some sort of second tier tournaments after it. So you can, you can construct a mini vacation for yourself. Yeah. And that's, 
I mean, even without this week off, as you point out, that's what a lot of players are, are doing. They're voting with their feet to take more time off. And the extreme case is Federer skipping the last two clay seasons. But top players, even who are playing all surfaces, will often take a few weeks. That's why a lot of players skip Monte Carlo, especially the Americans. Um, weirdly, they play the clay court event in Houston and then skip Monte Carlo. But that's a, another discussion. Uh, but yeah, players seem to prefer having lots of shorter breaks and haven't pushed that hard for a shorter season, except for just general bloviation. Uh, okay, we're over the 60-minute mark. Carl's got a tennis match to get to. I'm sure you all have lots of more important things to do than listen to our 64th and 65th minutes. So Carl, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks for bearing with my cold, Jeff. Yeah, we hope you feel better soon. Um, and everyone check out Carl's 30 Love podcast and probably a week from now we'll report on everything that happened on the ATP tour or maybe that's not the best week for that we'll, we'll, have, we'll find something to talk about next week lots of deep dives into Charleston and the like so thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next week <laughs>